Hello, everyone. Lee Arnold here again with our podcast of Country Music Conversations. This week, we'll be visiting with someone who personifies not only country music, but also other musical genres. There's no one more respected and revered than Emmy Lou Harris. But before we start this conversation, here are a few words from our sponsor. Country Music Conversations with Lee Arnold's podcast is made possible by our sponsor, MarketSmith, Inc., the digital media agency that's been growing brands like Toomey, Shark Ninja, New Jersey Lottery, PSE&G, Blue Mercury Cosmetics, and Dick Sporting Goods. You know what makes this agency so good at what they do? Because simply being a marketing agency is no longer enough. Solution-based, problem-solving, and ever-evolving They create enduring value for DTC and B2B brands by opening up and growing marketing channels. Their patented AI offerings, informed by human intelligence, allow them to act with agility and intellect. I was speaking with the CEO not too long ago, and she was saying they take on clients who know who they are, who want to grow, and clients that know what they want. These big brands choose MarketSmith because they want to merge with a partner who'll make them exceptional and an agency that will grow their revenue. Digital marketing is not easy, but MarketSmith, Inc. knows when to make the media dollars work hard for their clients. You have a brand you want to grow? Well, contact MarketSmith.com and tell them Lee Arnold sent you. Singer songwriter, musician, band leader, and duet partner. Throughout her career, she's won 14 Grammys, is a member of the Grand Ole Opry, and was inducted into the Country Music Hall of Fame in 2008. And in 2018, she was presented with a Lifetime Achievement Award. Emmy Lou is from a career military family. Her father was a Marine Corps officer who was a prisoner of war during the Korean conflict. Born in Birmingham, Alabama, she spent her childhood in North Carolina and Virginia. She graduated high school as class valedictorian, then studied music at the University of North Carolina and was influenced by the music of Joan Baez, Bob Dylan, and Pete Seeger. She dropped out of college and moved to New York and performed in various coffee houses finally landing a weekly job singing folk songs at Gertie's Folk City. She married fellow songwriter Tom Slocum, and after recording her first album, Gliding Bird, she had a daughter, got divorced, then moved back with her parents. She continued performing in the clubs and coffee houses in D.C., where she met Chris Hillman of the Flying Burrito Brothers. Chris recommended Emmy Lou to Graham Parsons, who was looking for a female vocalist for his first solo album called GP. Emmy Lou toured with Graham as a member of his band, The Fallen Angels, and also did duets and vocal harmonies. Shortly after, they worked together on an album called Grievous Angel. Graham died of an overdose of alcohol and drugs, and as a result, Emmy Lou was devastated. Her luck changed when Warner Brothers A&R head Mary Martin signed her and introduced her to producer Brian Ahern. 
Brian produced several successful albums with Emmy Lou. They married in 1977 and had a daughter, Megan. Warner Brothers had encouraged Emmy Lou to have her own hot band, and the musicians she assembled were Elvis Presley's band, except for songwriter Rodney Crowell, who also became a close friend. Ricky Skaggs replaced Rodney when Rodney decided to go for a solo career. Through her career, Emmy Lou has had several successful hits with duet partners, including John Denver, Don Williams, Roy Orbison, Earl Thomas Conley, to name a few. However, her very best collaborations have been the album she recorded with two of her best friends, Dolly Parton and Linda Ronstadt. Emmy Lou eventually divorced Brian Ahern, then moved to Nashville. It was there she met British songwriter Paul Kennerly, whom she married in 1985 and co-wrote all the songs of a concept album called The Ballad of Sally Rose. They divorced in 1993. In the years that followed, she's had other backup bands and has remained creative and experimental, spawning several albums with many of the songs written by Emmy Lou herself. Critically acclaimed performances in albums with diverse musical styles and also wonderful themes such as White Shoes, Angel Band, Blue Bird, Cowgirl's Prayer, Wrecking Ball, Red Dirt Girl, Stumble into Grace, and others. Emmy Lou is a strong advocate for traditional country music, having recorded a live album at the Ryman Auditorium to raise funds to keep the Ryman from being torn down. Throughout her career, she's appeared at various benefits for several causes. One of her pet projects is Bonaparte's Retreat, an animal shelter on her property devoted to saving dogs from euthanasia and having them adopted to forever homes. Of our many interviews over the years, this conversation took place in 1988. Our discussion included her marriage to Paul Kennerly, her thoughts on Roy Orbison, Merle Haggard, Graham Parsons, and upcoming projects. Here now is Emmy Lou Harris. Our special guest today, who we haven't seen in a while, uh, and always pleasant to see, Emmy Lou Harris. It's nice to see you, Lee. Always a joy. I was just thinking, uh, as you walked into the room here, Emmy Lou, uh, first thing that pops into my mind is a purist, P-U-R-I-S-T, but also has probably the purest, P-U-R-E-S-T, voice in country music this or any other year. Well, those are kind words. <laughs> and uh, I, as far as in my music, I... I, I guess I'm a purist because I like the pure music so much that I go back and listen to it. I'm inspired by that. Possibly by the time I get to it on some of my projects, I've changed it around, but I I somehow feel that that's okay to do that. I still try to retain something of the origins, and so as long as I do that, I figure it's okay. You're a recognized spokesperson for traditional country music. Uh that is kind of like going out on a limb a little bit, or at least at one time it was. Now it's fashionable because of what they call the new traditionalism. I, I'm, I'm kind of in a quandary about that. Does new traditional mean uh, anything before 1982? If it wasn't Randy Travis or George Strait, uh, it was had to be Lefty Frizzell or Webb Pierce. Well, it's so hard to know, Lee, because, you know, when I think about this, because there's been so much talk about it, but 
And I know that maybe people say, well, it was a wasteland out there. But, you know, we're we maybe forgetting, you know, like uh, John Anderson, Roseanne Cash. I mean, there was really, there were spurts of some real good stuff trying to get through and some that did get through. It just wasn't this massive wave that has hit us now, which is wonderful. I think it is wonderful. But certainly... Um, uh, it never died down. It, no matter how uh, hodgepodge it got there, you could always be sure that if, at least once an hour, somebody would play a Merle Haggard song. <laughs> so it was okay. Right now you are on the brink of a, a wonderful new album called Bluebird, your latest, and a hit single from it called Heartbreak Hill, which you and your husband Paul co-wrote. Well, it does seem to be doing very well. And um, Paul, that was Paul's... Uh, invention that song he started it and i liked the feel of it and i thought it might work for this album so he said well if you know if you want to record it you should probably co-write it with me so put your sort of stamp on it and i i suppose i did i really think he wrote almost the whole thing i think i added about a half a verse <laughs> but um i had to sit through the writing so i guess i earned the credit it's a very spirited song uh it kind of reminds me it well it is actually traditional in nature. There's bluegrass there, but it, it is so country as country can be with a capital C. Well, we wanted a, a rocker, but but a country-type rocker. I, I'm not that comfortable with outright rock and roll singing it. I don't feel it fits me or my voice. So it's nice to come up with something that's a bit acoustic that can rock, that isn't just bluegrass. Uh, there's almost a skiffle feel to it. Uh, which I suppose is a music we haven't had too much over here in America. But Paul, being from England, there was a big skiffle movement. Lonnie Donegan, who was a very influential uh, musician in English music uh, back in the 50s and 60s. So uh, some of that uh, shows up a bit in, on, on that song. The collection Bluebird is really a composite of the old and the new in country. You've chosen uh, a couple of well-known country standards in there, like uh, Lonely Street, Carl Blue song, uh, and the Johnny Cash favorite. I still miss someone. Yes, I love those two songs, and and I. It's not that I set out consciously to mix the old and the new. Um, sometimes those old songs just come come at me and say, "Here I am," <laughs> you know. And that's what happened with Lonely Street. I started collecting material for this album back in uh, about eighty two, uh, and in fact, Lonely Street was one of the first songs. And it was from, I was sitting down, there was a six-string bass in the studio, and I picked it up and started playing this arpeggio and singing that song and, and got a feel for a different type of arrangement and a feel for it. And about the same time, I heard the song of Rodney's, uh, You've Been On My Mind, and uh, uh, If You Were a Bluebird, which was written by Butch Hancock. And so those songs tended to sort of start the nucleus of an idea for the Bluebird album. And later on, uh, when we were underway, uh, it was actually Paul who heard I Still Miss Someone and wasn't familiar with the song. He heard someone do it, and he, and he asked me what the song was. And I said, oh, that's just some old Johnny Cash song. And uh, he said, God, that's beautiful. You should do it. So I, I, I really trust his opinions. You know, he, I think he has a real good ear. And um, so I, I worked it up, and uh, we decided to put it on the album. And I'm really glad we did. It's a wonderful version of it. So completely different from Johnny's or any other that's recorded. And Lonely Street, if I were a, a record reviewer, I think the first two words I would use is Emmylou Harris gives Lonely Street one of the most reverent readings ever performed because it's almost reverent in nature. 
Well, it, it, I think it was just somehow slowing it down and, and, and doing it with that six-string bass. It somehow opened it up. But um, also, we were real lucky on that because I went in the studio in 84 to put down some tracks. And um, that was the only track that, that survived those sessions. And it was a live vocal performance. So I think that there was something uh, magical about just the particular time that we went in to do it. You've also included some very contemporary writers as well, including Tom Rush and a John Hyatt song called Icy Blue Heart, when the opening line is, she came on to him like a slow-moving cold front. I mean, that's <laughs> that's pretty heavy imagery. Old John does come on with a heavy imagery. He's <laughs> such a good writer, very unusual point of view. His songs, you can almost tell a John Hyatt song before you know he's written it. And um, I, I love the imagery of the song. I thought it... It fit in with the other tunes, but it was it was different enough to give it another flavor. There was another song there which you wrote uh, by yourself called "A River for You," which is absolutely just precious. Well, thank you, Lee. I don't do much writing on my own, as you probably know, and that song, um, I actually asked Paul to help me finish it, and he refused. Really? <laughs> uh, he said that I. He said that that song was pretty much done, and that that he felt that I should finish it on my own. I mean, he did that for me. He knew that I should finish that song by myself, and uh, and uh, I was able to do it. But I've always had sort of this fear of writing by myself. I suppose it's another one of those neuroses that I'm going to have to tackle and deal with. you got great backup in Paul, though. Yes, he's incredibly supportive. I'm very lucky in that sense. How do you and Paul juggle your individual careers? His is most successful these days as a writer, as we discussed before we started to do this. And uh, you, uh, well, I guess you've kind of laid back. You're not appearing as much as you used to, doing as many dates at home with the kids and Paul. So you've got really the best of both worlds. Any conflicts at all? Well, no, I'm very lucky because Paul is very, very supportive. And... Um, I mean, I do try to stay home for, for the majority of the year, the school year, but still there are weekends when I have to go out or things when I have to do. And he's always there to help out. He's wonderful with the girls. And um, so uh, I couldn't have a more uh, supportive person to who understands the music business and the pressures and, and uh, my schedule and how erratic it can be. On the other hand, we both want a very normal type of home life, and we are very... Um, uh, we really are adamant about having that home life and that time to be, you know, together at home. So we both want the same thing in the end so that we both work toward it. The musicianship of your group, the Hot Band, your backup band, has always been, I think, two words come to mind, top drawer. Uh, the alumni reads like a hoo-hoo of, of the group, uh, really the best. Good pickers are really a priority with Emmylou Harris, aren't they? Oh, yes. Um, I got myself into that boat, and very happily so. Uh, when I asked the, the people who had recorded on the first album, the members of Elvis Presley's band at the time, um, James Burton and Emery Gordy and Glendy Harden, to come out on the road with me, I actually never thought they'd say yes. <laughs> but they did, and then I had to pay them. <laughs> But it was wonderful. It was uh, uh, the hot band was born and uh, it set an incredibly high standard, uh, I think, for, you know, for for the format that I wanted to have the people that I wanted to play with me and take out and not only in records, but on stage. And 
but I was fortunate in being able to, as each person left to pursue this or that, I was able to replace them with equally, you know, wonderful musicians. So I've sort of always had a full deck of great players, and I've been very, very lucky that way. One of the most difficult challenges for an artist is to recreate the sound of a record in person. Usually a studio session is with studio pickers, but you had the luxury, as very few do, of having the same musicians that played on record play the performance wherever it was. Yes, I was able to have that. And even when, you know, I replaced those musicians with other musicians who hadn't been there for those recording sessions, the the people that, that you know, came to my band were so incredibly versatile that they could not only play the old stuff exactly as it had been, they could also take off on their own with their own style and add another dimension to the band. So it, it was, I've been very lucky. Your past hits have really... Uh, run the spectrum musically, anywhere from traditional country to modern country to pop. And there's even been a little bit of an R&B twinge there, too. Oh, R&B? Well, I don't know. What was R&B? <laughs> Maybe you'll get to that point someday. I mean, have you thought about it? R&B will always be a favorite on my turntable, but <laughs> I don't know if I would ever tackle that. But rock, certainly. A little bit. I, I think I've come to the feeling that I'm not that comfortable with rock. And, and, uh, the up-tempo songs that I try to do are, are more uh, in a country vein. But um, I, I did have the success with C'est La Vie, which I suppose would be considered rock, you know, Chuck Berry. Or Save the Last Dance. Well, but the way we did Save the Last Dance was a real, real country uh, version. And uh, so I think that we took something and turned it, did a complete sort of 180-degree turn with that one. You really are the counterpart duet-wise of Willie Nelson. I don't know of anybody in the female and the gal singers who've recorded more duets with anybody else than Emmylou Harris. I think, uh, who's been left out of the list? Willie says he's recorded everybody from Abe except Z. He's, he's looking for someone by the name of Zabriskie, if he can do it. I know a, a fellow named John Zambetti who makes <laughs> albums. Um, well, I have done a lot of duets, and uh, the, the next project, I think Willie and I have been talking for about three years about doing a duet album. <laughs> Is it going to happen? Oh, it'll happen someday. Uh, but, you know, we've got a list of songs, and uh, one day we'll do it. All I can do is corner him in the studio. Yeah, I think I'll have to go to Austin. <laughs> That's usually the secret. See if Willie's got a day off. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Some of the duet partners have been very impressive. Recently, I think everybody was so saddened and shocked by the passing of Roy Orbison, who you had mo one of your most successful collaborations with, uh, that loving you feeling again. What did Roy mean to you, Emilio? What was... His, his musical well, uh, feeling. I think like most people, uh, just as a person who listened to music and grew up with a certain kind of music, Roy Orbison will always be a voice of of, of your own life history, you know, and, and play a special part in that. Because um, certainly he was so unique. His voice and the songs he chose to sing, uh, he added a seriousness and a drama to music that I don't know if it was there before before Roy and his particular style. So that was that was one Roy Orbison, you know. And then to meet him and, and find out what a wonderful man he was. And um, to see him be such a professional, loving music, continuing to work even when he didn't have the big hits, to not think oh well you know i had all these hits so therefore i you you know the the world owes me this or that he was he was a professional and a working man you know who was always 
looking to sing for the joy of it. And um, it was wonderful working with him, being asked to sing with him. And um, I'm glad that, for his sake, that, that the song, because that was really a Roy Orbison record, that duet. Uh, he wrote the song. It was Roy Orbison all the way, and I was just along for the ride. <laughs> and what a ride. It, it was. It was quite a ride. You managed to strike a happy balance in your career. You've stayed away from the um, cliques and the musical politics of Nashville, so to speak, and emerged really as an independent person in your own right as far as your music is concerned. If you played the game, do you think you would be ultimately more commercially successful than you have been? You know, I don't think so. I really have always believed that that whatever commercial strength I have is because I do things the way I want, and the audience that it appeals to wouldn't have it any other way. Um, so, I when people applaud me for you know you know well you stayed away from this and that I I feel that I had no choice really. Which gives you a bigger rush: recording a hit in the studio and living with it and actually almost like the birth of a baby, or going on the road and performing it before a live audience? Well, they're so completely different because when you're recording a hit, you don't... <laughs> I've never yeah. known. I've never known. It's a big rush for me to record a song. A song from the, you know, you you hear it, you write down the words, you can't wait to learn the chords and, and sing it. And then, you know, you go in and you record it and it turns out to be something good. That's a wonderful rush. It's 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 so... You know, you see it from start to finish. That's one thing. And then it's a completely different thing to go out and perform it and have the audience respond to it. Um, it's almost like you couldn't have one without the other. Obviously, you I think you have to record it and create it in the studio. And um, so possibly that's more important. Mm -hmm. But uh, I sure would miss the touring and the singing it live. It's wonderful, I guess, standing on stage, and you've been through so many performances in your career, Milo. I mean, from the very beginning of paying your dues in coffee houses in New York to appearing in in places like Avery Fisher Hall in, in New York some years later, uh, it still must be a special joy to you, aesthetically, to see that audience react to your music and the faces of the young and the old. Oh, it's wonderful. I mean, it would... You never get tired when you feel you've really reached somebody, an audience. When you really feel that that the song means as much to them as it means to you, and that that there's a communication there. I mean, it sounds corny, and you can go over it, and but you almost can't ever say enough about it or express it. It is. People talk about being high. It is real, real high, and there's just a. a there, there's nothing that can take the place of that. Graham Parsons was a very influential person in your life uh, who really had a great deal to do with what Emilio is today musically. If he were around today, would he be happy with the country music he'd be hearing? That's hard to say. I think I think he would to a certain extent. Um, he was real fussy. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's hard to know what all the ideas that were in his head would have eventually come out to be. He was incredibly creative and had a real unique vision. But I think that there would be a lot of stuff that would make him smile. 
At one point, way back when I heard a story, and true or not, you can confirm it, that he was going to record Merle Haggard, and something happened. Either Haggard never showed up, or... Merle Haggard was going to produce him. And uh, there was just something that just fell through. That was when I first met Graham, and the, the project that they had asked me to come out and work on, Merle Haggard was supposed to produce it. And then when it fell through, he just went ahead and did it himself. And it was probably a good thing. It made him, you know, take control and, um, you know, you know, do it on his own. If you had to narrow it down, it's very difficult. What one country song says it all for you? Boy, that's a tough one. Um, you mean that I recorded? Either you or someone else. Um... <laughs> If you had five records to take to a desert, that's difficult to say because you, you look. But maybe just because it's on my mind that that there was a record that Dolly and Porter put out years ago that just I just think is just one of the best things that was ever. If teardrops, if heart, teardrops were pennies and heartaches were gold, I mean, I'm such a fan of the the duet anyway, and that song and the combination of those two voices and the way they did that record. There's just nothing like it when that comes over the radio. Something. Are you play it for me? I sure am. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I think that was really done by Carl and Pearl Butler, wasn't it? I believe it was, yeah. yeah. It's something like a standard is a standard. There's no such thing as an old country song. I mean, it's it's brand new all over again. Even 20 years later, it's it's still fresh and revitalized. And there's another thing. What do you, how do you feel about the remakes today in country music, of people reaching back and uh, going for true, tried and true material? Well, I've been doing that <laughs> for a while. Work for you, too. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I think it's good. I mean, if you feel you've got something to give, you know, to a song, then then I think you should go for it. Um, you know, I, 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 I like hearing the, the uh, you know, old songs redone. What I would like, though, is for radio stations not to forget uh, to play Kitty Wells singing Making Believe. You know, I, I appreciate them playing my version, you know, but, or the Leuven Brothers singing Making Believe. You know, the old versions still stand up too, and let's not forget about them and let's play them too. Very good. Several names are so important in your life besides Paul, who've been influential and are dear friends, people like Rodney Crowe, who was a friend and a member of the Hot Band, who you discovered way back when, and it took so long. Why do you think it took? So this overnight sensation, Rodney Crowell, who's been there for years. Oh, I don't know why that happened. All of his friends and supporters would speculate on it. I think I said years ago, Rodney Crowell is inevitable. He just had too much talent and uh, to be ignored uh, for forever. And um, it's, it's really hard. I think uh, country music went through a real identity crisis there for a while. And... Uh, People didn't know where to put him. He was too country for pop and too pop for country. And you can go through all the cliches. But basically, it, it, happily, it has turned out that Rodney Crowell is inevitable. And, and I think people are going to be pleasantly surprised when they re really find out what they've got on their hands with Rodney Crowell. Vince Gill, another dear friend, has really surfaced. Oh, he's a marvelous singer. I tell you, he, he's a... Uh, he makes all us girl singers jealous because he can sing higher than we can. <laughs> and uh, I'm hoping for the best for Vince because uh, he, he'll just break your heart when he, he opens his mouth to sing. 
What do you feel is your own best quality? As far as an artist is concerned, or a human being, oh, you mean besides my cooking, <laughs> yeah, are you a pretty good cook? No, I'm not. I'm actually being a bit sarcastic there. Um, I don't know, really. I, I think that it's, it's not anything I can really take credit for. I think I've been blessed with a with a real love of music and an and an ability to be able to make music, and I get an enormous amount of joy out of it. And that just carries me through uh, just about everything. <laughs> so, What's your legacy for country music? How would you like to be remembered? Um, well, she played a real mean rhythm guitar. <laughs> she sure does. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing about the singing. See, it all comes down to the musician, doesn't it? No matter, forget the writing, forget well, the singing, always the musician. Well, um, it's really hard. You're real subjective about yourself. And um, I, when they asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up, I said a country singer. And I still feel that way. The influences were great in your career, whether uh, folk music, pop music, country music, and I guess all forms, really, uh, and bluegrass for the most part, because as we mentioned earlier, you're such a purist and, and love the raw values of music, of, of where it all began, the origins, the Stanley Brothers. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, big big influences, all, all the different types of music. There's so much good music that's been made, I mean, on this planet. I mean, there's, and I probably haven't even begun to scratch the surface and probably never will, but just the little bit that I've decided to sort of put my attention to, it, it's just an, uh, just an endless um, and it's a constant source of inspiration to me. You look like you've been the happiest you've ever been that I've seen in a long time, Emmy Lou. Everything seems to be very peaceful and happy. Well, I am happy. I mean, my personal life is very happy. I'm very excited about music always, but I think I've sort of almost gotten a second wind that I didn't even know I had. And uh, so it's, life is good. <laughs> <laughs> it couldn't get much better than this. That's right. Of all the songs you've done, I've kind of, what is that, 18, 19, 20 albums now you're up to with Bluebird? Well, actually, I guess if you're just talking about uh, n not the compilation albums, I think this is my 15th album. Forgetting Gliding Bird. Yeah, we are forgetting <laughs> Gliding Bird. Okay. I'm trying to think. There've been It's been so varied. There have been so many wonderful things, as you mentioned, recorded and hits for you that you've been so successful with. If you had a list four or five of the best that you really enjoyed doing night after night when you were on tour songs. during this on stage. What still are the ones that seem like a brand new song when you just hit the chords? There's lots of them, actually. I, I'm lucky in that most of my material I don't get tired of, but I will say that um, uh, Born to Run, um, Making Believe, I never get tired of that. Hello, Stranger. Um, I, those are songs that, in Luxury Liner... I guess still works for the audience, but from a vocal point of view, I guess those others that that I mentioned, they uh, and and a song that I've recently started doing again, which I stopped for a while, which is "Coat of Many Colors." Oh yeah, you you recorded that after Dolly included one of your own. Yeah, that's uh was on Pieces of the Sky, and right. and I used to do it every night, and then stopped doing it. Different band members came in, we had too much material to learn, and it just sort of got dropped by the wayside. And then last year we worked it up again, and boy, that's just that's just brand new all over again. 
Of course, uh, any more plans besides Willie for duets? Any projects in the works? Uh, not uh, real solid, although Bruce Hornsby and I are talking about doing something together, just maybe one song. You mentioned you're doing television now, or some television things. Well, I am. I, uh, I taped the Today Show, and I'm going to do David Letterman and uh, possibly the Tonight Show. Uh, I was out there to, to do it, actually, and unfortunately, Johnny Carson got sick, and so it canceled the whole show. But um, you see what happens when yeah. I agree to do television? <laughs> <laughs> what about videos? There's talk about doing a video for the next single, so I guess I'm going to be right up there with everybody else doing those videos. <laughs> Last question of all, and who do you think, looking back in country music, it's probably very difficult for you to, to pinpoint one person, is the greatest act, the consummate entertainer, performer, to ever come down the pike? In country music? That's real, real hard because as, as, as limited as people think of country music being, they're, they're the, the real greats in country music are s such strong individuals. You know, I, I think talking about performers, you know, just not just singers, because there's been some great singers, but people, we're talking longevity here too. I would have to probably list Merle Haggard and Willie Nelson because, you know, Willie is just unstoppable. I mean, he's done so much to just bring the excitement and the, and the, and the big grand stage and and he's brought country music, the intimacy of country music, into the arena, into the big arenas where the rock performers play. Merle Haggard, if you've just ever seen Merle Haggard perform, I mean, it's just an unforgettable experience. And the and the body of music that the man has made since his first album. I've, I've said before in interviews, he could have quit 10 years ago and still been considered one of the greats of country music, and he still continues. And you can say that about Willie, too. So... Um, Putting me on the spot like this, Lee, I, that would be my answer, but, you know, on, on just coming to mind, um, because there's certainly been some amazing, amazing singers and performers and, and visionaries in country music. Country music. Willie and Merle really stand out as two of the all-time greatest in the history of country music from the standpoint of not only uh, performers and entertainers, but also as writers, the music that they have given the world countrywise, both Willie and Merle, is just incredible. Yeah. Another one, I mean, I, I, I should have probably mentioned Johnny Cash, but I think of Johnny Cash as being in a category. I don't even think of Johnny Cash as a country artist. Uh, he's just an artist who just sort of embodies what somebody larger than life, you know, and his music just crosses so many uh, boundaries. But um, what was the question? <laughs> Greatest entertainer to come down the pike. You named all three. Yeah. And there's probably more, but they stand out right. more than any others. What was probably the most difficult song to record in the studio that sometimes it just happens. It's magic. You win, it's one or two takes, and it's there. Were there any problems that you ever had in the studio of getting something down? Getting something down. Um, well, that's hard to say. I'm trying to think if we ever did have any trouble like that. I've always been pretty lucky in that once we decided to do a song, if we had the, the, the blueprint of an idea for an arrangement, we pretty much got that, that, that kernel down. We, we got that down. Now, then maybe finishing it sometimes was difficult, but with the musicians and the, and, uh, the production that I had, I, I was always in good hands. It's changed so much over the years. Uh, 
before you just go in the studio, as you mentioned, with live. It was done right there. Chet Atkins happened to mention that uh, I've been everywhere when he cut it with Hanks. No, he had to stop the tape after each line. Really? <laughs> because of all the names in the song. It yeah. was hard to memorize. And he, he, he had to stop. After, and even with Hank Lachlan, he used to have a problem with his phrasing of stopping after each line. Well, we've all had those problems. <laughs> I mean, I've been had trouble with vocals where I had to do lots of you know, different tracks and comp them. And then I've gotten live vocals like Lonely Street. And you think, if I can do it once, why can't I do it every time? But it just... It, you just have to take each song. Each song is going to get born the way it's going to get born, and you better just be along for the ride, however long it takes. Whalen just came out, they came out, RC came out with a compilation of his early material called The Early Years, of all those songs like Stop the World and Yours Love and the great music of the, of the mid-60s and early 70s that Whalen recorded. And in those days, he went in the studio with the musicians, with Chad Atkins producing, with the background singers. It was done right there. Today, he says, we're overproduced and overrecorded. Uh, maybe the artist goes in and lays down some tracks, then there's overdubbing, the musicians come in, then there's more overdubbing. Has the magic gone out of recording in country? I, I think that it can on any record, on any type of music. We, we have so much technology now that we are all, we have all been guilty of overdoing it. I think that each song you have to t look at each song and decide what needs to be done to it. Sometimes it should just be done live and that's it and not worry about anything else. But I think that I'm glad we have the ability to overdub because I think you can create magic with overdubs, but you have to know when to stop. And once the sound of the vocal and the sound of a, a person's voice gets lost and the sound of each individual gets in individual instrument gets lost so that you can't pick out this or that so that you're just layering and layering and layering to get a big sound i mean phil Spector was able to do that and create a magic sound but that's a different thing so right. it it just varies it really varies with each project i think well, I mean, it's been a long day, and I want to thank you for stopping by you still have a way to go the folks here at warner brothers have to hear your new album Oh, yes, we're going to have a little party now. It's time to party, Lee. <laughs> Put on your party shoes. All right, I'm ready. <laughs> Always a delight to see you. Good luck with the new album. Well, I feel the same way. I look forward to the next time we chat. Thank you. And there's our conversation with Emmy Lou Harris, a humble and honest superstar. Join me next week on Country Music Conversations for a visit with Vince Gill. Until then... Lee Arnold reminding you to stay safe and keep it country.